I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we have we have just Eddie. It's Teddy Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Marie. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Vincent. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo, Rowers Choice, and this is another podcast. And this is 109, and I keep we just I, it blows my mind how many we've done. And out of all the podcasts, the hundreds, because we do we've done hundreds of interviews outside of these. I've never had a conversation with a man from faith, a gentleman who is known as Father Mark Connell. Yes, you heard it right. It's not doctor. It's not, uh, I've had doctors, I've had lawyers. We've talked to coaches from all over the world. We've talked to rowers all over the world. I think this conversation is going to be fantastic. Now, he doesn't have a lot of rowing background. We're going to get into that in a little bit, but we are going to be talking about what the heck is going on in Newburgh. New York. Yes. Newburgh, not the rowing capital of the world, but they got something cooking up there. And we're going to talk about what, what you do and how you go about doing it, how you build a program around an area that doesn't really focus on rowing. It's not Philadelphia. It's not Boston. It's not California. Father Mark, thank you for being here. Alex, good morning. And thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So look, I ask everybody, and we, you know, we we talked about this before we started here. But how old were you, and where were you when you took that first rowing stroke? So I grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York. Um, I attended the public schools there, so I ended up at Poughkeepsie High School. We had a, a good and strong um, crew program. I was raised a competitive swimmer, and all of my teammates in swimming just went from from the swimming season to the crew season. And I, I did that for one year and uh, that was freshman year. And then at the beginning of my sophomore year, my dad bought me a lawnmower and he said, have at it kid, go get a job and make some money. And that put a quick end to my rowing career. <laughs> you know, I'm a dad. I would absolutely do that. I think that is so funny. It's like, hey, kid, get out of the house. Go make 10 bucks. Um, well, so, okay. You, I want to know what year was this? So how long ago did you start? Did you have that one year of rowing? Uh, well, that was, that was a long time ago. That would have been um, in 1974. Now I, I th- okay. I'm going to bring this up. Now you are you are an older gentleman, right? Um, it, there's no secret to that. Uh, but rowing has changed dramatically since 1974. I mean, holy cow! You were rowing in wooden boats with wooden oars uh, in Poughkeepsie, and funny enough, Poughkeepsie was a big place for rowing. Right? There was a lot of things happening in Poughkeepsie, yeah. New York, long time ago. So I'm just surprised that. Aside from your father being funny about the lawnmower, like, how did you find the sport, right? So freshman year, like, what was it that brought you into it? Why did you want to try it that year? Well, it's, it's I guess you could say peer pressure, right? We were all swimmers, um, most of us on the rowing team. And the influence was you went from your swim season over to the, the crew team. It was just kind of a natural transition that we all made. So natural transitions. Okay. Do you remember the coach that you had back then? You know, I was taxing my brain and I do not remember the coach's name. I remember my swim coach's name, but not the crew coach. 
All right. So 1974, freshman year, your dad sends you out on a journey for mowing lawns. You make some money. What do you do after high school? So where, where do you take your, your, your career? Where do you go from there? Well, um, I was a senior at Poughkeepsie High School. Um, and as I said, I was a, a competitive swimmer and I was pretty decent. I was recruited by Larry Van Wagner to row at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, um, also of rowing fame. And um, I was all set to go to uh, Marist College when uh, I graduated Poughkeepsie High School. And during that summer, I will spare you the details, but through a series of events, I had what they termed the call, if you will. And I felt called to the priesthood. And instead of going to Marist College that September, much to my surprise, I ended up at a college seminary um on long island wow okay well you know what i don't want you to spare me the details this is a very interesting thing that my my wife grew up in the church and i did not i funny enough so i had an embarrassing moment when i was nine years old they said i'm in sunday school and they said flip to um matthew something something and as a nine-year-old i had no idea what they were talking about and i couldn't find the page and every kid in that class made fun of me like they made fun of me and I was completely, I says, I'm never doing this again. Now, fast forward, I'm 29, 28 years old. I'm married. And my wife says, we got to join the church and we send our kids there. So then now my faith has grown and I've spent every Sunday and I love the atmosphere and I've, I've really built a great family there. So you were 19 years old. You had this calling, like what struck you? Why did you take that path? That's a, you, that's a very young man to be saying, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Yeah, that is, um, that is the question that I try to answer every day, right? I, I had a very strong feeling that this should happen. My father was Catholic. My mother was not. Um, so we kind of attended both churches growing up. So I had a flavor for what it meant to be Catholic, but I also understood what it meant to be Protestant. And in those days, they were very different. Um, and, you know, so my family was spiritual, but, but then during that summer, I just had this deep feeling within, and I didn't know any priest. My family was not friendly with any priest. This was all internal. I knew Alex there was something I should be doing with my life more than what I was planning. Wow. And it was so strong and it was so powerful. Um, I knew, I, I tried to put it aside. I said, maybe there's something wrong with me. Um, and I ended up talking to a priest and he was the hospital chaplain. The hospital was up the street from our house. I ended up talking to him. It's the first time in my life I ever spoke with a priest. And he said, I think you're meant to be a priest. And that was kind of a surprise to me um, because I had many other plans for my life. And yet that's what I made the decision to do, as you said, as a, at a very young age. And I, I fought that decision, Alex, every step of the way. Um, I was not the model seminarian. Uh, any, any of my professors will tell you that because I, 
I fought it. I said, this can't be, this isn't what, you know, I should be doing. And now as an old guy, as you mentioned, and I look back at my life, I realize that God's plans for me were, were far greater than the plans I had for myself. And we'll get into that as this um, yeah. conversation continues. This is weird. Yeah, it's so funny, the timing of things. So I just got finished Father Stew, the movie with Mark Wahlberg on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but uh, plug to uh, Netflix. It, you know, it, it talked a lot about that choice, you know, making that decision in, in life. And he found it later in life. And it's a true story. And um, it's funny that I watched that two nights ago. And here you are, you and I talking. Um, funny. It's funny timing. But so I want to get to your you you being 19. Um, one thing I ask a lot of uh, my interviews is, did you have family support? So you know, being a crew coach is not a lucrative business. It's not, you're not a doctor, you're not an attorney, you're not making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Did you have parent support when you made that decision at 19 to do, to take the path you, you took? <clears throat> well, you know, I was afraid to tell my parents actually. Um, so after I had this conversation with the priest, um, I said, you know, I'm just gonna sit on this for a while. I didn't say anything to anybody. And lo and behold, the priest decided to call the house and ask for me. Oh, and no way. Parents, yeah, he blew me up. He totally blew me up. And um, and so my parents look at me and they're like, why is he calling our house? And so I sat them down. And I said, look, I'm thinking about these things. And my dad started, you know, um, welling up. He wow. And he went on to tell me that when he was a young man, he desperately wanted to be a priest. Um, but then at that time, his father had cancer and his mother said, you need to go get a job to help us out. And, you know, my father uh, abandoned those thoughts and went on to live his life and later get married. So he was he was overjoyed that um, though it passed him by one of his sons, you know, had that um, had that calling. My mother, the Protestant at the time, she wasn't quite so sure about the whole thing. She went along with it. Um, she, I don't think she would get in the way of it. And much later, after I was ordained, she became a Catholic. But um, so I said, overall, yes, I, I had a, a positive feedback from my parents. So, okay, so you're, you were, you're just, I'm just going to say you're 20 years old in and around 1978, right? 1978. So, 78, 88, 98, 2008. I mean, you're, you're, you've been doing this for 35, for, for 40 years. You've been doing this for 40 years. Yes, sir. I've been around a long time. <laughs> I hate to bring up your age, but okay, for 40 years. That's, there's a lot. I don't want to talk. I mean, as much as I respect you, I don't want to talk about your whole life. Okay. So yeah. over the period of neither. time, neither do you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. You, you rise through the, through the ranks, right? You be, you be, you, you get ordained, you become a father in the Catholic church. Um, when do you get connected to a school? Cause you're at San Miguel Academy. Like at what point do you get connected to um, running and being the president of a school? Yeah. Good question. So um, I was ordained and in 1986, I was sent to a church in New Rochelle, 
uh, by the way, right up the road from the New York Athletic Club. Um, and I was no stranger to hanging around the AC. Um, but I was only there for two years. It was a beautiful parish. I loved it. Great people. Um, and then one day the phone rang, and that's what happened to us in um, the diocesan priesthood. It was Cardinal John O'Connor, and he said, Mark, he said, um, I've got to move you. I have a school up in Westchester County that needs you, and um, you do what you're told, right? So um, I ended up in Somers, New York, at a high school called JFK, and that's where I began my teaching career. I didn't ask to be a teacher. Uh, they made me a teacher, and um and I spent 10 years there and then the phone rang again and they said, Mark, you, you, uh, we want you to move. We have a need up in Newburgh, New York at a college. And by then I had my doctoral degree. Um, and so they said, uh, you know, we need you, uh, up at this college teaching and, uh, helping the kids along up there. And that's when I was sent to Newburgh. That was 1998. Wow. Okay. So Okay, let me ask you this and be honest with me. Um, I know you said that when Cardinal John called you, you had to say yes, right? Like you just you just have to say yes. It, it, were you angry? I mean, were you frustrated? Because 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 being because being at a pass at a parish is as you know is significantly different than like raising high school kids, you know, teaching kids and and then having teachers to work with. I mean. Were you angry about that or what was your emotion of making that switch? Yeah, uh, great question. It, it, you know, when you're ordained, you think about living your life in a parish and with amongst all of those families. That's what's in your brain. That's the vision um, that you have for your life. And um, so, yeah, when, when he said you're going to be a teacher, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I was, I wasn't sure I was able to do it. Um, I didn't want to leave the people that I was just getting to know. Um, and you know, that's what obedience is about. We vow obedience. And so it didn't matter what I felt. The boss said, you're going and you pack your car and you go. Um, but yeah, no, it was not a happy time for me, Alex. And I don't mind telling you that. So you, you get to Newburgh in 98. That's a, so America is going through some big changes. And, and the biggest moment in our, in my history was 2001. And you're very close to New York. You're very close to that area. What was life like for you um, as a father, as someone ordained, experiencing New York at that time? What, what was going through um, your life in 2001? Well, what I can say is, you know, 2001 impacted everybody. And I had three close friends, people whom I had married and were close to who perished on that day. So uh, that part of it was was devastating. I was in New York City on 9-11 looking for a friend of mine. who wow. um, His wife, you know, um, couldn't be found. So I went down with her uh, to search for him. So it it touched me deeply. I saw the pain um, inflicted on so many families um, throughout New York. So yeah, tough time, really tough time for a lot of people. And that, and that pain lingers and never goes away.
Well, you know, forgive me for bringing it up. I just, I just, you know, you being in New York, growing up there, I mean, you spent, you, you have such a thick accent. You clearly are a New York <laughs> individual. It's just, I, I've recently spoken to some folks in the church world that experienced that and um, it just, it impacted them. And I, and I know folks that are educators that were supposed to be just like you were, like you're doing, you know, you want to be in a parish and that, that affected them greatly. Um, all right. So I understand that you, you, you saw the pain you've experienced it now, but you stayed in Newburgh, right? So you're in Newburgh and Jiminy Cricket, this is 24 years ago. So you've been, you've been in one city for a long time. And, yeah. and yeah. in that time, rowing was never really a big thing. Okay. So let's get into the rowing. You're at this school. Uh, you said you're at a college. Um, now you're 24 removed, 24 years removed from rowing. When did rowing come back into your life? At what point did you say, hey, I kind of want to get back into the sport that I found so long ago? Yeah, so um, Newburgh is on the banks of the Hudson River. Um, you see the river um, on many of the streets that, that you would travel through in the city. So it's there. It's in front of you every day. The sun comes up you know, in the morning, you see the mountains lit up, you know, the river is there. Um, the aesthetics of it, the natural beauty of Newburgh is amazing. And when you get off the bridge and, and drive into the city of Newburgh and arrive at the college, everything seems pretty bucolic, you know, a typical town, nice homes. But just past the college boundaries is some of the worst poverty in the country um, and some of the worst violence in the country right here in Newburgh. So I was always comfortable. I was in New Rochelle, beautiful parish, affluent parish. I was in Somers in Westchester County um, teaching affluent kids. Then I get sent to a college. I have, um, they hand me a beautiful home to live in, um, you know, and everything is fantastic. But the river was there, and, and maybe because I'm a swimmer, water's in my blood, um, I always felt called by the, by the river. And I, I used to say to people at the college, why do we not have a crew team? And they said, we just can't afford it. I said, okay. Um, and life went on, and that, that story will come back later on. But, yeah, I mean, a long answer, Alex, to your question, but, you know, there's a crescendo to all of this, you know, and... and the thing I want to say is my life and support for this school goes all the way back to Newburgh or, or New Rochelle rather in the beginning friends and connections I made back then are present in this school today. So the whole span of my life, I believe was so that this school could exist um, so that we could help children in this troubled city. And there's nothing and I've been, a, as you say, I've been a teacher for 40 years. There's nothing that changes the life of a kid more than rowing. I got you. You're giving me goosebumps over here. Um, all right. So you, you, you've been at, okay. So tell me about San Miguel Academy. What, how long has it been around? When, when did you get a part of that, that, that program? Good. Sorry, those are my dogs. Uh, we have two service dogs here. One of them has a big mouth. Um, 
Yeah, so let's go back to Newburgh, right? Uh, Newburgh has all of these dubious distinctions. Um, as I said, it's, it's the most violent city um, in New York State. It's, it's um, among the top 10 in the country. It's gang-ridden. And here I am teaching and preaching at a college. And, uh, and I'm talking about justice and I'm talking about things like equity and, and moral issues. And then I started looking at the city where I'm preaching this message. And I said, wait a minute, you know, there's, there's a disparity here between the haves and have nots. And I started to get involved more and more in the um, center of the city, which is the most troubled part of Newburgh. And then I started to get my students involved. And then we started to analyze what is poverty? Where does poverty come from? What sustains poverty? Um, and we started to ask some of those bigger questions around what it means to be poor. And more and more, I felt this draw away from this very comfortable life that I had lived um, for quite a while. I felt drawn to this poverty. Uh, because I couldn't believe that what I was seeing in Newburgh could exist in the United States of America. I mean, I saw abject poverty at that time that that was incredible to me. Wow. Wow. I don't man. Um, it's not often that I, uh, I, I get a loss of words. <laughs> I, uh, my mother told me I had the gift of gab and now I'm, I'm trying to figure out where to take this, uh, this interview. Um, what year did you leave the college? I left the college, let's see, 98. I was there 13 years. Um, and the college, so let's, let's just back up a little bit. When you're a teacher, right? When the Cardinal tells you you're teaching, you have to have a place to say mass on Sunday. So he told me that I was going to be helping out in a place called Chappaqua, New York. And so I took up duties in Chappaqua back in 1989 while I was teaching in high school. I said mass there on Sundays. I ended up being there 25 years. Now, anybody who knows affluence will know that Chappaqua is among the most affluent cities in the country. That's where Bill and Hillary settled after they left the White House. Um, so it's just one of those uh, suburban communities that, um, that people settle in because the school system is so great. I was there 25 years preaching to those people. They became my friends. And so when I found myself in a city during the week, Monday through Friday, that had one of the worst school systems in the country. And then Saturday and Sunday, I'm up at, um, you know, the, uh, I'm down in Chappaqua at one of the best school systems. I mean, even for a thick Irishman like me, I, I could figure it out. I said, there's a reason for this disparity in my life. And I started asking people, you know, can, there's something we can do to help these kids in Newburgh. And that was really the genesis from listening to my own words um, 
and then engaging other people. That was the genesis of the school. We, we decided there's only one way to break the cycle of poverty, and that is through the um, through education. You know that. I know that. You look for good schools for your kids. Anybody who wants success for their children, they look for a good education. And we had the idea that if we put a school together, we could change not every kid's lives. I mean, we didn't have the money for that, but that we could change profoundly as many lives as possible. You know, I, I just circled a word entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur. You went out there. You said, I, I know how I got a problem. Number one, you're like, I found the problem. Number two, I want to do my research to find out how to solve that problem. And number three, you took action. And you did it. And you clearly took action. Uh, did you ever see yourself as an entrepreneur? Uh, never. All my friends are entrepreneurs. People who know me would would not, um, you know, ascribe me as being an entrepreneur. However, hanging around with a lot of smart people for many years um, brought the best out of me, I think. And, you know, I'm kind of an open person and and like to talk to people about society and and how we can have a better world. And, um, you know, so it's, it's the school is not about me for sure. Um, but it is about a group of people who were entrepreneurial, as you say, and, and had a vision for helping people. And, and what's better than that, people helping people. How long did it take from the, the idea moment where you said, I, I know what I gotta do, to convincing people and then having it actually become a real thing? How long did that take? So I'm a, 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 I'm, I used to have more patience, but uh, at that point, I saw an urgency um, in this mission because the longer it took for us to get this school going, um, the more kids were going to be lost to the streets, right? I mean, yeah. we were watching the headlines. The headlines were despicable, you know, 10-year-olds running drugs, 10-year-olds oh. getting up by the police. Yeah, you know, so I said, okay, folks, we got to move on this because we're talking about children here. And, um, and so we moved from the first meeting we had, it took us 16 months to actually open the school, to go through all of the legal machinations, to assemble our first staff. Um, and this goes back to the college because the college was 100% behind me doing this. Um, and so some of the nuns who, who ran the college got behind it as well, the Dominican sisters. So, you know, it was such a collaborative effort. We had smart people from Chappaqua. We had smart nuns. Um, and then we had uh, this old guy who said, yeah, let's let's make a team and and uh, and make this happen. And so we did. It, it opened up. We started in early 05, 2005, and the school opened July 1st of 2006. I, okay, I am shocked to hear 16 months. That seems so fast. Like, I, I was expecting you to say three years, four years, but 16 months is impressive. It's very impressive. Well, it, it speaks to the talent, right? If, if I was good at anything, Alex, it was, you know, drawing in the talent. I mean, we had to do a feasibility study. Do you know how long a feasibility study takes? I do. Uh, but, <laughs> I do. you know, so we, 
we had we had this great woman, and um, and she just went at it tenaciously and got it done, and it was a fantastic document, and that's the document that we used. Uh, we had a million dollars in the bank before we even had a school. Um, that's how compelling the feasibility study was. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we had. You know, it's funny. I think um, I'm convinced of something. I'm convinced that one man, one woman, um, if they are obsessed with something and the people around them can see it and it's genuine, I feel like you can move a mountain, right? But they, it's a genuine thing. And I imagine that in like 2003, 2004, 2005, you were so passionate about this idea. And, and I, I would imagine like, that's the reason things happen so quickly, right? You said that you drew talent. That's like one of your best attributes. You drew the talent. You got the people to come behind you and support you. Um, you must've been a force at that time. Like you were, you probably like were an unstoppable force in those two years. Well, I don't know about that. I know one thing I don't like to fail. Um, number one and number two, to be really honest with you, Alex, I, I had to learn a lesson and the lesson is there were days when I said to myself, I can't do this. And the answer is, the answer came back to me. That's right, Mark. You can't do it. And I had to get away from the singular pronoun and embrace the idea that this needed the plural pronoun in order to succeed. And, um, you know, I sat on this idea for a couple of years. I had it earlier than than 2005, but I sat on it because I said, well, how can I do it? And so it was very humbling to come to the realization that it's not about me, it's about we. And that made all the difference. All right, so when did, when did rowing, when did rowing become part of San Miguel Academy? Again, it's, it's that river, Alex, there's something about that river um, that is mysterious to me. And, you know, it's an unusual body of water, the Hudson, because it's, it's a, it's a tidal river. It, it, the, the Native Americans who lived along this river for, um, centuries, you know, they called it the river that flows both ways. Um, and so it's just, it's, I, I always want to get a glimpse. So I try every day to get a glimpse of the Hudson river, even before rowing. So it was something I grew up with in Poughkeepsie, um, and it's something that kept drawing me. And one day, somebody gave us an erg, and we were brand new. This was 2009, so the school was brand new. And they said, here's an erg. And I went back to my Poughkeepsie high school days. I went back to that all-too-brief rowing career, and I said, you know what? I remember how rowing felt to me back then as a kid. Maybe this is something that could benefit these children. And so, you know, one by one, the kids started getting on the erg and there was only one of them. Um, and then we associated with a kind of fledgling rowing movement that eventually folded up um, in Newburgh that was trying to help 
low-income kids. Uh, but by that point, I had done enough research um, that I knew uh, it, it's part of the intuitive side of my personality. I, I knew that this was going to make a difference. Well, so um, my, my, I'm located in West Baltimore, and I see every day the poverty that you saw in Newburgh, and it's 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 apparent uh, to me. It's like clear as day. And a couple of weeks ago, we held an erg event outside in the neighborhood. We had a bunch of people come up and try the erg, and it was wonderful. And out of the, say, 75 people that tried it, two people really stuck with it. And now they're going to be rowing for Baltimore Rowing Club, and it's really cool. Um, I haven't done it enough, but what are some of the ways to get the kids who grow up in that environment to row? What are some things that you say that you do? How do you encourage kids in those in that lifestyle to have the confidence to be in a boat and row? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question, Alex. And and if we had the silver bullet um, for that answer, uh, we could change the world. But I I know from what we witnessed here, um, and and I think it harkens back really to the culture of this school, right? This school exists as an educational option for families who can't afford anything. We only take low-income families in this school. Um, and, you know, when a child comes here, there's something about our messaging at San Miguel. They get very hungry. They want something better. We have some, such an uplifting, affirmative culture here um, and, and a trust, if you will, between the school and the families that we serve that when we put rowing in front of our families who predominantly um, were opting for soccer, um, in the beginning, there was a little pushback. Nobody was quite understanding it. But then there's that moment, right, when you put, if you will, the boys in the boat. Yeah. And, and when, when they got to the river and they put their hands on those oars, and they started to make that little craft move. The light went on. The light went on. There was a sensation for them they had never experienced before in their lives. And those kids who did that for the first time, they were the spark. You know, they lit a fire here at the school. And it just kind of snowballed after that. So I don't have a real good answer to your question other than the kids who initially took to it would probably whisper in the ears of other kids, give that a try. And you, they had, did. you actually answered it perfectly. I mean, so you go back to, you said your message that you, that you push at the school makes the kids hungry, right? And they get, uh, they want something more in their lives. So um, you, you, and you said you built an area of trust, right? So I think, I think children in in those environments have no trust for anybody, right? There's this, there's they they lack trust, they lack faith, they lack friendship, and your culture at San Miguel constructed that, right? It gave you the base. At which point you could introduce literally any sport to their lives, and they'll they'll take to it, 
right? Or, you know, some kids will take to others. And, but you know what I'm saying? Like, they, you've built the baseline culture, you've built uh, the trust to introduce pretty much anything in their lives. And they're going to, some of them are going to love it, and some of them are going to choose something else. So I think that's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that's the answer uh, to that question. Yeah, you, I agree. You, you, um, you caught some, you caught some fire recently in a good way. Um, and I met you down at youth nationals, right? So that's a, that's a, a very long journey that was done in about 10 years time. So you went from a program who got an ERG in 2009, one ERG, to being at the national championship in 2022. That's a, quite a story. And that's not a very long time uh, to get to that level. Um, what are you most proud of in those 10 years, 11 years? I'm proud of every kid who sat on an erg and started pulling on that reel and made that thing move and had to you know, embrace the pain and the discomfort and yet continue to do it. Uh, I take no pride in anything that I've done. Uh, the heroes in this story are the kids who sit, sit on these machines every day in back of us. Now, something that I think is so apparent in our sport is the lack of diversity, right? So the kids from San Miguel go to a regatta where it's 99% white boys and girls, and you have more diversity at your school. Um, did you have to have a conversation with them to say, hey, you're, you're, you're the minority here? Do you even say that? Like, I'm trying to understand how you uh, prepare the kids to see what they see, because it is way different, right? It's a, it's a much different environment. Okay, so I, I think, Alex, let me share this with you so that you understand the objective here. Um, this is a school, um, and it's not a rowing academy it's a school and our objective is to get our children out of the city of newburgh for high school why the answer is because the graduation rate for low-income kids in newburgh is abysmal um i can give you some numbers that would um you would find astounding in terms of the high school graduation rate it's very low so um, that's, that's our mission. Our mission, and it's why people give us money, is to take a kid through middle school, polish them up a little bit, give them some of the skills they need, um, give them the academic fortitude to go on to high school and succeed. So we have been boarding kids to boarding schools all throughout New England and the Northeast um, for a long time, since 2009. That's our mission. Rowing, wow. and yeah, so so you know when I'm I'm sitting with a child and his mother in an admissions office at Canterbury School in New Milford, Connecticut, that costs sixty-seven thousand dollars a year. I'm saying to the the admissions folks, this kid's worth it. He's got grit. He's got determination. He's got pretty decent grades. Would you please take this kid? That conversation can only go so far. And what I 
realized is that it's incumbent upon us to build the resume for these kids so that they really have the appeal to be worth that investment from the receiving high school. That's where rowing came in for us. We saw it as a tool um, that would enhance a child's resume, if you will, um, so that we could land some of these big scholarships out there. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of programs in New York City that try to help low-income kids. We're competing against them. And we're this little middle school in Newburgh trying to do this. Um, and I can tell you, Alex, you, you will understand this perfectly. When we started presenting rowers in the admissions office, eyes would light up because everybody knows that a rower has some unique characteristics that will probably make them um, worth, if you will, the investment that the school wants to make in a child. <laughs> uh, your your uh, your visual, your approach to this um, is very uplifting. I I, uh, I know the answer. I think I know the answer based on what you just said, um, but I want to ask it: is is what's your what's your goal? What, like, is there a is there a carrot at the end of a stick that you keep going for? Is there an end goal that you could say, "I've done it. We've done it." You know, because you, you, I'm sorry, you don't say "I." You remove that from your 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 language. We we've done it. At what point do you say we've done it? Um, uh, until every child in this country has access and opportunity none of us should rest. Um, there is a problem in the United States of America, and it is simply that the playing field is not even. Depending on the zip code you were born into, depending on the heft of the school district um, in which your parents reside, that will determine your future. And nobody asks, to be born, none of these kids asked to be born in Newburgh, New York. Um, and yet that was handed to them. That's their deck of cards, right? That they were given. That's the hand that they have to play. Um, we're gonna sit back and ignore them. Uh, no, that, that's not gonna happen. And we're gonna do all that we can to give the child and her family um, what they need to break the cycle of poverty. Poverty is not fun, and it's a scourge in America that we have poverty. And to the extent that people who are able to can help these families, and that's the beautiful thing about our mission, is that everybody who gives us a dollar can walk through this door today and see where their money goes. And they're so happy because they can see the evidence of change. They can, they can get to know the kids whose lives are being helped by, by this mission here. And rowing has helped that educational mission in ways I, I can't even describe to you, Alex. It's, I say to my staff all the time, I wish Scrabble had the same outcome because it'd be a whole lot easier to teach the kids how to play Scrabble. But the fact of the matter is it's rowing and it's hard to do and it's an enormous amount of work and we don't have 
any of the accoutrements that a typical rowing club would have. We trailer our boats seven miles every day, one direction. The kids wet launch every day from April through November. They would have no idea how to launch a boat off a dock. Um, we, Caitlin um, Jampolo, who helps me with the rowing program, the two of us just got certified level two coaching. Um, what changed for us, because we never competed, you said 10 years, but during those 10 years, we never competed. We never even thought about competing. In fact, uh, I'll tell you a story. People locally would look at our rowers and say, they're not good enough to compete. That's what people used to tell us. And one day this man knocked on our door. And you and I know who he is. It's our Shea Cooper. He came up here. He saw what we were doing. And he said, you have to compete. And it was really 10 months from the day he rang our doorbell to being down there and meeting you in Sarasota. That was 10 months time. So if you want to talk about a trajectory, over those 10 years, we never competed. We just taught a kid how to roll, placed him placed her in boarding school and we went on with life. Nobody ever heard of us. We were, we were mired in obscurity um, other than the high school coaches that we were dealing with and sending our, our children off to. Um, we came on the national scene in 2021, in the fall of 2021, when, when um, that great man, Arshay Cooper paid us a visit. That's unbelievable. I mean, it, you know, there's like these things that happen in your, in your career. It took you 16 months to build the academy. It took you 10 months to actually start competing. I, that's, it's, hard, it's, hard, it's hard to comprehend, right? It's hard to comprehend. And, it, and it's funny, you know, you've heard the phrase overnight success, right? And that's what probably some people probably think of san miguel academy it's like oh this they, they no it's it's taken you decades to get where you are today with this program and lucky enough in in competing i mean you're able to now have the u15 categories where you can send an eighth grader to race at the national championship now i, I you know and it's incomprehensible to some of these families that their young boy or girl raced at a national championship with thousands of kids around from around the country, you know, big things are going to happen to you in, 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 in just a few years. If you continue this trend, you, you, I'm sure it's not lost on you. Um, that's my dream, Alex. Uh, and as long as the kids, and I can tell you the, the trajectory um, that Arche caused here changed everything in the school. Uh, 75, the principal is sitting right here, Frank Snyder, 75% of our kids row. Um, and we're a small school. We only have 64 kids, but you can do the math. Um, we have fifth graders hopping on the erg. They can't wait to get in the boat. Um, so yeah, we, we all know that this is going to go places. Um, and as long as the Lord keeps me uh, well enough to continue to do it, I'm, I'm the, uh, I'll stay behind this thing as far as long as I can. 
Uh, I'm going to say something very selfish. So uh, please forgive me here. I, I thought that I was um, a voice for rowing, right? I thought that I had a calling 10 years ago when I started my company that I was the voice that, and, and there's the body that could get kids to row, that they could change the sport. And uh, it wasn't until this interview that I think I met my match. Uh, Father Mark, I think you are the voice to change the sport. And uh, for episode 109, this is, a, this is quite a special podcast. And everyone tuning in that have made it this far, uh, we're going to have a link here for the academy you need you, you need to support them you need it and, and, and it could be just cheering from the sidelines and that's enough for a young kid to keep rowing and if you want to support them financially uh please do so father mark thank you so much for the time here today i had so much fun alex i enjoyed this conversation immensely um and so good to see you again after sarasota and um I don't want to jinx it, but you're going to see us in Sarasota again in 2023. What a mic drop moment for Father <laughs> for Father Mark from San Miguel Academy. Everyone tuning in, I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week for another episode of Rollers Choice Podcasts.